Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Episode 8 of the REPA Radio Hour. The EAL Radio Show presents Eastern history, stories, and memories by the pilots who flew the planes of Pitcairn Aviation, Eastern Air Transport, and Eastern Airlines. We're very fortunate to have at our disposal over 40 years of history as told by pilots of this great airline. Your producer and Admiral John Engel edited a book titled The Best of Repartee after 30 years of magazines had been published and distributed to REPA members, affiliates, and spouses of those that had passed away. The magazine was a standard which other pilot retiree associations strive to equal. Although repartee is no longer published in magazine format, Editor Captain Jim Holder has now published a smaller version, newsletter, but it's still called Repartee. Congratulations, Jim, and it was a job well done on your first issue. We're hoping to continue broadcasting great articles as they become available by the Eastern family of employees here on the show, the REPA Radio Hour. Eastern Flight 9, you're cleared for takeoff. Wind 10024, runway 13 right, cliff takeoff. Lever. Up, three off. 
speed break? You're in one of Easton's whisper jets. The noisiest section is the pilot's compartment. We keep the door closed. In the cabin, it's quiet. The jets and the noise are behind you. The Whisper Jet climbs to smooth cruising altitude faster than any other jet airliner. It's the most relaxing plane there is. Fly Eastern. See how much better an airline can be. www.blogtalkradio.com forward slash Captain Eddie at 3 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. Remember to abbreviate the word Captain to C-A-P-T and click on the smart arrow. Remember it must be at 3 p.m. or you will be given the message that our show has not begun. Many just call in the show at 213-816-1611. This will put you on the producer's board, and you, can, uh, you will have a chance to share your comments or join in our discussion. Each is touched by number one on your, self, on your smartphone keyboard. That will tell the producer to mute or unmute your phone's microphone. Then just join in the fun. Now we can choose from listening or talk to our host. Speaking of host, uh, what have you got for us, Mike? Yes, uh, thanks, Don. Uh, Last week on Episode 8, we shared uh, repartee stories titled Tickled Her Fancy and The Very Moving Born to Fly, which is in uh, Captain Neal's book on page 172. Hear the stories written by the men and women of Eastern Airlines with uh, with us each week. We have two stories about pilots who flew with Eastern in the early days of airmail flying. Captain Van Huss was one man of humor in a strange sort of way. Mr. Producer, can we listen to the first short story? We couldn't find the author of this article, our story, short story, sent in to repartee to its editor. The title is Captain Van Huss. Van Huss always liked to get people off balance on first acquaintance. Later, he would endear himself to them, but to start with, he wanted them at a disadvantage. As an example of this, a flight attendant who had never flown with Van came up to the cockpit at the beginning of a trip to introduce herself to the captain. Hello, I'm Peggy. Hello, he grunted. What's your name? asked the girl. Van Huss. What's your first name? Captain. Van delighted in taking fine point of difference or a minor word interpretation ambiguity and make fuel for what 
to the other person was a large and very much overblown argument. As an example, I can cite the time Van was going through the ground school for the Lockheed Electra. The instructor was explaining the workings of the landing gear. The impression had been created that the gear could not be accidentally retracted while the plane was on the ground and had weight on the gear. The instructor was going to great pains to dispel this illusion. After carefully explaining how over-centered locks and safety switches could be overridden, the instructor added, so if the gear handle is moved to the up position, the wheels will come up. No, they won't, voiced someone from the back. It was Van Huss. The instructor sighed. Every class seemed to have one of these people who never could grasp simple mechanical logic. Patiently, he reviewed the information he had covered previously and again finished with the words, and the downlatch mechanism will be overridden and the wheels will come up. Now, is that clear? The answer was forthcoming immediately. You are wrong. The wheels will not come up. Again, it was Van Huss. Thinly disguising his rapidly diminishing capacity to tolerate such denseness, the instructor sneered and asked, Well, if you are so well informed about the electric gear, let's all hear your explanation. Van drew his six-foot-one-inch body to full height and with a deadly serious expression on his face explained, Sir... If you put the gear handle to the up position, the wheels will not come up with weight on the gear. The plane will sit down on the wheels, but they will stay right where they are. Uh, Chuck is not with us, so uh, that's that's pretty good. Jim, do you have the uh, script? There in front of you, Jim Holder. I don't just think so. I've been looking, but I can't find okay. it. Okay. Well, we'll just, just continue on here and talk to you after a few of these readings here. Uh, can you go ahead and take that part for Chuck, uh, Mike? Uh, I get the, yeah. Uh, it says here, the, after after the Captain Van Us clip, he says, a captain who could take uh, any situation under control. I wonder what it was like to fly with him. I would feel comfortable with a decision from him in the case of any emergency. How about our next captain? Thanks. Uh, Arch Furchgott, uh, Repetit's uh, historian, wrote a short story of another captain that could spin a yarn as well as an airplane. Here is one titled Memories of Captain Gil Waller with, with a subtitle. Did I tell you this one? Mr. Producer? This story was sent in by Art Furchcott to Captain Gene Ramsey, the editor of Repartee. The title is, Did I Tell You? Memories of Captain Waller. Dear Gene, in the past few issues of Repartee, it had some interesting stories about Gil Waller. Gil was a good friend of mine, and we kept in touch until he passed away in February 1938. 
I had the honor to hear Gill tell one of his tall tales. Captain Gill Waller had already started the story when I wandered up to the group of hangar flyers around him. It happened back in 1923, he was saying. I was in the Army detail with a cameraman to take a DH-4 and make a mapping survey of a section of West Texas. The job was to take a week. Nothing out of the ordinary happened, although I did get frisky and loop the crate one day. When we landed, the camera operator acted a little peeved. He told me he didn't have his safety belt fastened when I looped the airplane, and he had almost dropped his equipment. Some people get mad at every little thing. So we were on our last day's work, cruising along, minding our own business, when two eagles loomed up in front of the ship. I maneuvered out of the way of one of the birds, but the other crashed into one of the outer bay wing struts. The impact threw the plane out of control. When I regained my bearings, the controls were loose and sloppy. I looked at the broken strut, expecting to see part of the wing rip loose, but the wing was intact. The eagle caught there was still alive. It lodged somehow between the top of the strut and a brace wire. Several other wires were trailing behind the wing. I moved the joystick, but the ailerons did not respond. The crash had snapped the aileron control wires. The ship began to spiral tightly. We began to lose altitude fast. I knew we would end in a spin if I did not do something immediately. I tried all the tricks I knew, but nothing seemed to work. I turned back to the camera operator and gave him a sign to jump and use his chute. He was not looking in my direction, but instead was watching the eagle on the strut. His eyes, which I could see through his goggles, were wide with astonishment. I followed his gaze out to the eagle. The eagle seemed to have revived. One of his wings was free, and he seemed to be making an effort to straighten it. You could see by his expression that it was very difficult, but he finally made it. The effect was noticeably noticeable instantly. The spiral loosened up. Soon we were making a wide turn. I looked intently at the bird, and he seemed to understand what he was doing. I motioned downward with my hand, and, and his wing went down. We were now in a straight glide. The terrain below was pretty flat, so there was little other maneuvering to do. However, we were flying downwind, so I motioned for a turn into the wind. As the eagle strived to obey, I could easily see that it was taking his very last bit of strength to dip his wing still further. I cut the engine, and we landed. I looked at the eagle. He was looking at me, and he smiled, the smile of a hero as he died. And that, concluded Captain Waller, is my story. That's horrible. <laughs> it's, a, it's a sad yeah. story. <laughs> you know, that story reminds me of sitting... Uh, number two for takeoff at Kennedy and a Pan American uh, 707 was right ahead of me and 
and um, uh, when he taxied out, he owned for the takeoff position on forgot what runway over there by the water. Uh, a seagull landed on its wing, <laughs> and and so we, being number two, were watching this. And we were wondering how long that bird would stay on that wing. Would he go from Kennedy to London? <laughs> yeah, but that grip on it. Yeah, but uh, of course, as soon as the airplane started to roll, so so did the uh, gall. But birds are funny, kind of funny. I'm sure all of us that have flown airplanes have hit at one time a bird in flight. How about it, Mike? Have you done it, or Jim Holder? Yep. Yep. Times. yep. <laughs> I had a buzzard taken off out of Atlanta. Didn't know it till we got to Denver. <laughs> didn't didn't know it. He got out. <laughs> well, Mark, it's a long out. story. I don't want to bore you with it. It's a <laughs> okay. long story. Yeah. Well, Don, yeah, take I us into it. our next one. How about it, Don? Hello, Don. Yes, I'm here. How about taking us into the next story? Uh, are you on Chuck's mic? No, that's okay. I'll take it. Your producer, uh, me. I've got uh, this it. This is okay. Very good. Thanks, Don. Appreciate okay. I'm sorry, Neil. Neil, your producer went looking for a short story about cockroach, which had led him to seem uh, to one of the repartee magazines thinking it was a story about infamous Cockroach Corner that was in Miami International Airport. And we all well know what that's all about. But instead, he found this by an ingrative storyteller, Captain Old Adel Hoover. Mr. Producer, do you have Old Ad's Cockroach version? Yes, I do. His name is Oladad, and I had the pleasure of knowing him, but I'll tell you a little bit about that. Maybe, Jim, or you have too. But here's Oladad Hoover's story about La Cucaracha. But first, I want to introduce his text with this. Porque no tiene otro de falta Las dos patitas de atrás La cucaracha, la cucaracha Ya no puede caminar Porque no tiene otro de falta Marihuana que fumar Por las barbas de carranza Voy a hacer una toquilla The Cockroach Story by Oladad Captain Oladad Hoover I believe I mentioned last year that I was involved in a patriotic and selfless project to convert this nation to compost energy. I have to report that the world supply of compost has increased dramatically in the last year. I encounter compost wherever I go, yet my project has not kept pace. What I have is your basic communication failure. I am unable to convince the American consumer that converting to compost is something you can step right into without any huge conversion cost.
I left the Miami area under duress. It had been my habit every morning to empty the unused coffee over the side. Now, the FOOBBS, or Friends of Biscayne Bay Society, has brought legal action against me, alleging that I was the cause of a massive fish kill. Lane Guthrie was jury foreman. Outnumbered, I fixed a late snack of cucumber sandwiches, and we sailed in the dark of night looking for a change of venue. In order to confuse the pursuit, I deemed it was wise to change the name of my vessel. It used to be Gnatsas, that's spelled K-N-A-T-Z-A-S. Now a gleaming new sign proclaims Virtue's Reward. That would throw the F-O-B-B-S off my wake. I don't know where my new base will be, and I would not tell if I did. When you're running from such a serious, rap-tight security, it's damn important. So when you get this letter, please chew up and swallow the postmark. There was an article in the paper some time back reporting an entomologist theory that some of you older fellows might have something to learn from the lowly cockroach when it comes to longevity and survivability. After all, the old line goes back a long, long way. They survived the Ice Age and then the Mesozoic and the Palazonic, uh, Palazonic Ages where all the mastodons and dinosaurs tried to stomp them out. I know that if Noah had the smarts to build a boat, he would not have taken along a pair of cockroaches, no matter what his sealed orders were. Come to think of it, they probably floated around on compost chips. This whole concept intrigued me because with all the time I've spent hanging around waterfront docks and dives, I do know my cockroaches. I remember one time in Savannah, a mob of bandy-legged, uh, slant-eyed cockroaches came swarming down the gangway. They would eat nothing but rice paper. Sure enough, up the quay was a shipload of Datsuns, the Tutu Maru, from Yokohama. When we were in Cuba, a raggedly-looking bunch evaded the guards at the end of the pier and swarmed on board singing La Cucaracha. Of course, at that time, we had to welcome them with open hearts and open arms. So over the years, I have developed a strain that is outstanding for its hardihood, toughness, and intelligence. In fact, mine grow to be six to eight inches long and can weigh as much as three quarters of a pound. On rainy days, they track and walk all over the boat. Now living with a cockroach that size is not all bad, as long as they are lovable. One of these types has been the ship's mascot for years. But when one turns vicious, you have a problem on your hands or in your locker, as the case may be. I opened my locker the other day, and there was one of those uh, conifer-ferous devils shooting me a moon. Anyway, I thought the Virtue's Reward, the name of my ship again, would be just the place to experiment with this buggy guy's theories. 
So one night I stalked a gang of hostiles with my tranquilizer gun and bagged four of the most likely specimens. The same gun I used to keep Ruby calm. Same dockage, too. While they were still groggy, I jammed them into the blender and turned it on high RPM. In a few minutes, the agonizing screams stopped. There was an odorless, syrupy, rich brown liquid. After adding a splash of vermouth and an ice cube, it didn't taste too bad. A lot better than Geritol, so I've been taking a jigger a day for about three months. I don't know what the long-term effect will be, but so far my acne has cleared up and I don't have to watch my diet. Can't eat anything. My night vision has improved and I'm no longer afraid of the dark. I'm thinking of carbonating the syrup and marketing it under the name of Rockade, Roachcade, I should say. However, it may not be quite ready for testing by the FDA because every time there is a raid commercial on TV, I get a severe headache, nausea, and hiccups. I notice with regret that our memorial list inevitably continues to lengthen. I assume the, assume the seniority system will still prevail under those circumstances. So if those fellows can't save me a place at their table, I hope that I can at least get a stool at the bar. Regards, Oladad Hoover. And uh, editor's note, back to Oladad. Oladad, why don't you teach those roaches to row? Then you can junk the motor and save gas. Best regards, John. I think you've just found a cure for the coronavirus. <laughs> yeah, it might be. That was very good, Neil. Hey, uh, Jim, did you ever get as editor any material from Oledod? No, I don't believe I did. Yeah. Well, speaking of that, I never met Oledod either even though I live not too far from Oladod's back 40, as I call it, in the panhandle of Florida when I was living mm-hmm. in Pensacola. There were many story, stories told, even in our community, not only by the eastern folks, but our neighbors who knew this strange guy living up there toward Milton, Florida. I don't know where he kept his boat, but probably on some backwaters in the Pensacola area where cockroaches thrived. And I do understand his way of trying to invent another additive to gin and vermouth, or instead of vermouth, but no thank you (laughs) with the cockroach mixture. I like gin, I like martinis, but I don't think I could sample it with that. Uh, You know what a treasury of literary work we had among Eastern people, and and to think up of a story like that... uh, he was uh, he was alive. Uh, as a matter of fact, I had moved to Pensacola, and he he had just retired, I think, from Eastern. And um, anyhow, that's the story. Now you mentioned birds uh, a while ago. I, I do have another buzzer story, but I don't like telling stories I've already told before. But did I tell you about the one coming out of Arianka, Italy? No. No. You want me to tell you? <laughs> 
Yeah, you're going to. Go ahead. <laughs> okay. This is when I was flying for ATA, American Trans Air, after Houston, and we were coming out of of uh, Avianca going to Ramstein and then going to Frankfurt as a military charter with mostly dependents, not too many active duty people. But it was a sort of a vacation thing we did. They would go to different places part of being in the military, and we would fly them there. And shortly after takeoff out of Avianca, uh, we went through a flock of buzzards. And when we came out of the flock, they were one short because he went in to the right pack <laughs> intake. And let me tell you, you buzzard burn buzzard stinks. I mean, it smells and stinks and just horrible. And it instantly, everybody on the airplane was about to throw up. It smelled so bad. And, of course, we had to turn the right pack off uh, to try to get it. We could see it was a pack because it saw the temperature going skyrocketing up when that bird went into the intake. Uh-huh. And so we had to fly so we couldn't go to the like we usually go to 30, 35, something. We leveled off at 25,000, which is what you're supposed to do on one pack. And I'm not kidding you. Man, it was it was horrible. It was the worst mail you can imagine. And yeah. We landed at Ramstein, and they spent about an hour digging bones and feathers out of it. And and uh, we flew on the, to, uh, uh, to uh, what's the name of that? <laughs> I've had another one of my minutes things uh <laughs> The Air Force Base, everybody goes into the Frankfurt, Frankfurt. I knew I'd think yeah, of it. Yeah. We flew on to Frankfurt, and I mean, there were people getting off that airplane with pink and blue <laughs> and yellow and every other color. Yeah. Uh, never want to take a buzzard into your pack on a 727 or probably anywhere. Yeah. yeah. Well, I've got a couple of stories. We're going to do a birds uh, show one of these days. Um uh, but uh, let's let's Mike uh, Mike. How about introducing the next uh, the next story that we have about Captain Gill? Let me turn your microphone. You've got a little feedback on it, Mike. But go ahead, introduce that, Mike. Okay, I believe I got it right here. This is uh, now. Here's a story. Here's a uh, pilot story we like to bra- bra- brag or blame about. Bra- brag if you could tell if you were on the ground or. In the air, or better stated, continue flying or start taxiing to the gate. And if it was like an air hammer trying to break up the runway for a new surface job, you could blame whoever is available. If you were not the captain, if you were the captain and already knew who you were going to be blaming and it wasn't the flight attendant, or maybe it could be, this next story could be titled The Grease Job. Or better still, a Mike Scott landing, which uh, in my case I've done, uh, I've made uh, the grease jobs and the uh, the air hammer landings both. So here we go, our folks, about the grease job landings, Mr. Producer. Okay, well I'm going to start it off with this sound right here, because this is a grease grease jobs by Captain Tom Bartley. Every pilot knows that the well, Dad Gummit, I meant to put this one on. This is Kitchen Table Radio, isn't it? (laughs) Here's the grease job we hear every Monday night. Grease Jobs by Captain Tom Bartley. Every pilot knows that the formula for a paint job landing includes an element of luck. 
In fact, I think this is true of just about any landing to a greater or lesser degree. Some days you could not make a bad one if you tried. Other days you can't hit the ground with your hat. But once in a while a miracle will happen and you can't even feel it when the wheels touch the runway. That kind of a miracle happened to me once and only once in a DC-3. It was the most incredible landing I ever made. I still can't explain it. In the big airplanes, of course, it does happen occasionally. There is a lot of distance and a lot of weight between the pilot and the wheels. But a DC-3? Never. Yet, here's what happened. I was flying co-pilot with the late A.B. Duke in the spring of 1940, landing at Nashville. One night, en route from Atlanta to Chicago, trying for a three-pointer with half flaps, I made a normal approach, flared, held it off, waited for it to touch, and waited, and waited, and waited. Finally, I realized we weren't flying. We were rolling. I never felt it touch. Neither did Duke. We were both completely dumbfounded. No, it wasn't on a wet runway. I have no idea how it happened, but I know the old horseshoe was really working. In later years in a big airplane, I used to pretend with tongue-in-cheek that I could call my shots on those accidental grease jobs. Now you see how it's done, young man. I don't want to have to show you again, were remarks that I would make. Of course, the automatic wisecracks, which immediately follow that kind of a landing, are an essential part of the ritual. I hate these show-off guys. Don't look now, but I think we're on the ground. What was the own time? How can we report it? Well, it was a little hard to tell. Not a bad landing, Captain. Did you let it get away from you? Bill Nelson had the copyright on that one. Sometimes when a co-pilot that I knew real well came up with a super smoothie, I would say, go in the back and tell him the captain made that one. Bill Westhafer nailed me on that one one day. He painted one on like paper on a wall. Then as we walked back through the cabin, he said, nice and loud, you're really in the groove today. Actually, Westhofer didn't have to say anything to make the captain look good. All he had to do was fly the airplane. But of course, luck runs both ways. The good and the bad balance out, and you break even, supposedly. Actually, I think I came out ahead of the game on that in the long run. I remember a trip from New York in a DC-8 where neither the first officer nor I made a decent landing on the entire flight, and it was a trip with five or six stops. Finally, on arrival back at JFK, I was determined to end up with a good one, but I didn't. Crash! Bang! And we were on the ground. The second officer, Gene Smith, had sat there at the engineer's panel and suffered through the whole string of cruddy landings. Gene had a very dry wit and 
was an excellent pilot himself, which made him fully eligible to put the needle in both of us for the bad landings we had made. As we taxied to the ramp, he came up with a uh, wry observation. He said, I'm, I know I'm just supposed to take care of the panel back here, but I just have to compliment you guys. You sure do make good takeoffs. Touche. I think very few professional pilots really get too upset over an occasional bad landing. Of course, nobody likes to make a bad one, but you can't go back and do it again. And it's no good to be a prima donna about it, so that's that. Still, it can be embarrassing, especially if you become impatient with a co-pilot and take over on final with an exasperated comment such as, Damn it, let me show you how to put one of these down in a crosswind, and then you mess it up. Which is exactly what I did one afternoon at Newark on the old trip 508 in a Super C L1049 Constellation. This may have been the best crosswind airplane we had. I showed the young man, all right, how not to make a crosswind landing. I wish I could charge that one off to luck. Some days you can't make a dime. Well, that's our readings from the best of repartee, the history as recorded by its pilots. The Retired Eastern Pilots Association's official magazine. And I uh, hope you'll stick around for some REPA chat. I see we have a, a couple of people on the line uh, that have called in and can comment and have been commenting during the show. So I'm going to open all the microphones. And, and um, if there's anything you'd like to add to our show to, today that uh, relates to this, then by all means, let's do it. Well, we all know what the difference between an open cockpit door and a closed cockpit door when the when the passengers are deplaning. It's the difference between a good landing and a bad landing. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Gil, Gil Waller died in 1938. So obviously that story about the eagle in the wires and the strut uh, his reference to the Pitcairn mail wing that he flew back in those days. And you've got an airplane that have struts and wires outside between two wings. Mike, you want to yep. tell us about your airplane? Well, there's not much to tell about it. It's a 1933 Waco, a UBF model, which they only made 18 of. And one of the reasons I actually have this airplane is because my uh, my dad had the second one that was made back in the 30s, and it was on floats most of the time. But like you talk about the wires, you know, the wires. If you're not uh, if you're not rigged right, those wires will tell you if you're you don't need an airspeed indicator to tell you you're going too fast <laughs> or you go. <laughs> They'll talk you to know, you. <laughs> Mike, I was going to ask you about that because when I had my Stearman. And the wires between uh, the uh, braces, uh, the two wings, 
the yeah. story was the story you could was make them sing. sing. Have you yep. ever made your wires sing? Put it into a dive. They'll talk to you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the ones between the cabane struts, you mean? Yeah, yeah. 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 And of course when you're flying the landing wires are the ones that are, are usually flapping around making the most vibration out there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I I think about our old airplane years ago that John Cornine and I owned. And uh this might be of interest to you, Jim Holder. But to Wayne Johnson and Bob Bytel took an old CAP Navy, it was a Navy trainer, uh, took that airplane and completely rebuilt it and did a beautiful trophy-winning uh, paint job on it. And um, as a matter of fact, you can look in the back of the best of repartee, and I got a picture of myself in that airplane. So... It was a beautiful, beautiful airplane. Uh, when John crashed, and, of course, he was killed in our airplane in 1971, I had it hauled off to uh, the Gainesville Airport, and Bob Bytel called me and asked me if I would sell him the airplane. And he said, uh, or I said, yeah, I don't need it anymore, of course, but... Uh, uh, he paid $400, and he told me later on that he tried to use it, but he wanted, I think, just the, the uh, what do you call it, registration number 1935, Mike. And um, there was a, ho- a, a ground, say, what do you call it, NAV, a GENAV, GENAV radio. Do they make those anymore, Mike? Um, Genev, I'm trying to remember yeah. that. I'm trying to going back to the yeah. old su- uh, narco super homer days. <laughs> well, no, this is a little portable that you can slide in. It's about the size of a cigar box. Yeah, I'm not, actually, I'm yeah. not really familiar with that. And it had a little uh, VOR Omni head uh, with the left right needle and the blue and the yellow, and you could actually yeah. navigate navigate to the VOR on it. And then, of course, it had the uh, crystals for the, uh, not crystals, but it was, uh, I don't think it was a crystal set. But it had uh, the, uh, you could tune in the frequencies, all the frequencies. Yeah. yeah. And it was a Genero? It's, it was called Genav, G-E-N-N-A-V. Genav. Oh, Genav, okay. Yeah. And uh, good little radio set, good little radio. And you had intercom, too, along with it, so you could talk to the passenger uh, that you were carrying yeah. in that airplane, tandem seat. Yeah, open air. Lots of noise. So, well, I'll, have, you guys... I'll have to send you some, some pictures of our Stearmans. We have uh, we have three of them at our airport, so uh, uh-huh. I'll have to send you some shots of them over. Jim Holder, I bet you missed the fly-ins uh, that used to have there at Bob Bruce's place. Yes, uh, where we and before that it was Aubrey Sweets, and uh, we Aubrey had a lot of good yeah. ones there. We had as one time as many as 150 people and about 40 airplanes. Wow! And Virgil wow. and I sort of hosted it and everything, and we just really had a great time. So not doing yeah, anything, like about, anything like that anymore. 
No, no, but it's still the Falcons try to have one there at center, that uh, Eagles landing. But the problem is every time we have it there, it's thunderstorms, lightning, rain, and everything else. And I fly yeah. in for like three years, didn't we? They all drive in. One time a tornado was coming, and we all piled out of that restaurant and headed home in our cars. I don't know. Did I ever tell you about my first airplane with B.W. Wilmoth, the Cessna 170? No. I hate to tell the same stories and bore people with them, but this was not a wonderful airplane. It was was a challenge, to put it mildly, and we bought it. It's been sitting next to a crop duster up in North Georgia somewhere, and it messed up what little paint it had. We brought it home and flew it some, and talk about radios, it had a crystal radio and I think it had two crystals in it and I never figured out how they worked but it didn't work very well because every time we took off out of Charlie Brown Airport they told us to get our airplane radio fixed or don't come back and uh, we promised to do that of course we never did we were too busy fixing the tires all the tires would go flat the battery went dead when it was brand new and uh, I mean it was a hell of a note sounds very familiar yeah, we took that thing apart and uh, put it back together, and I think I told you about spray painting my brand new Ford Country Squire station wagon in my backyard when we were trying to repaint this airplane, and it got more paint on the car than it did plane. But we did take a trip in it to Mississippi. BW and I did and loaded this old five horsepower Johnson outboard motor I had, which was about the same shape as the airplane, worthless. And we flew over there. And went fishing and and uh, wouldn't crank the motor wouldn't crank well, it wouldn't broke an airplane either but we could prop it but the, you can't prop a little five horsepower Johnson outboard motor but we took it apart out there and BW dropped half of it over overseas or over the board and we somehow got it started and made it back and just, this is one thing I don't think I've ever told anybody but we didn't shave or anything while we were over there and we looked pretty bad for the time and my dad was in there and we were driving his car and I was driving coming back we lost all the fish that we had caught and we were just really pissed off about everything and the damn highway patrol stopped us right there in the Mississippi and uh, apparently there had been a bank robbery or something <laughs> we looked like bank robbers right so they pulled us over and, and uh, started questioning us. So we, my driver's license were out of state and mine had expired. <laughs> <laughs> so they gave me a ticket and they had to come to court about a month later, they said, and gave me a ticket. And, of course, BW just got in start, started driving, and we came home. And, of course, my dad was sitting in the back seat. Just, this has been one of the worst days of his life. And uh, and but uh, he had some political pool or something, so he got about two weeks later. I got a call from from him, and he said that they talked to some judge there in Holmes County, Lexington, Mississippi, where I was born, and uh, they solved whatever penalty they were going to do to me. And I said, "Don't worry about it. We got it fixed." So, <laughs> well, you know, that's a great airplane. Did you did you uh, own a 170B model? Oh, it was it was a before an A model, I think. It was we think it was made in 1947. So all the paperwork had burned up years ago or something. I don't know. It had Cinconite wings. I can remember that. I was yeah. going to say, yeah, A model. That was an A model, yeah. yeah. It had B, B was little bitty flaps, little bitty flaps. And, and the B had the big flaps, yeah. 
Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But uh, well, last I heard, it's sitting over in Birmingham, you know, in a junk heap or something. I don't know. I always wanted a 170, but uh, instead I got a, a 195. <laughs> a little bit bigger, but uh, with a round engine. And yeah, I, yeah. Yeah, I own that, that was with a gr- Dick DeWitt. Yeah. That, well, that was a gr- that was a ground louver. <laughs> oh golly, yeah. Changed a lot of tires, tailwheels. Yeah. Let me tell you, I had that bad airplane. Then we had a Cherokee. Me and BW. He died about ten years ago. My best friend hired on the same day I did. But anyhow, uh, we ended up getting a debonair of all things. And I'll tell you, we went from the worst airplane around with that 170 to the best airplane I've ever been around. That 170 was beautiful. It flew like a dream. It was easy to land. And where you up, you went, you were a hero. So they had to come out there and say, what kind of airplane is this? The Captain Nancy written on it. It ain't got the right tail. <laughs> they only made them for eight years, and this airplane was made the first year in 1980. The boner. <laughs> no, I'm sorry, 1960. And uh, yeah, and uh, but uh, and we had to set it when he died and all that. Yeah, you know. it was a beautiful airplane. And then they put two engines to it. Yeah, made it a twin Bonanza or something. Yeah, twin Debonair. Yeah, Bonanza. Mm-hmm. Al, uh, Al, uh, what's his name? Uh, in uh, Reaper, uh, Birchard, uh Briard, Brillard. Al Brillard? Yeah, oh, Brillard. Yeah. He had a Baron, yeah. didn't he? Yeah, yep, he had a he Beach did. Baron, but he was also uh, there on the field, Spruce Creek. He also, mm-hmm. I think it was Spruce Creek there at Daytona Beach, was the IA. Yeah. And he did a lot of a lot of uh, inspections on the Debonair and the, uh, and the beach that he had. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well... Anything you want to add, Don? You've been sitting there quiet. I'm trying to be a good listener. <laughs> you mentioned uh, you mentioned cucumber sandwiches. Yeah, yeah. And uh, well, I didn't mention I, it. Oh, that did. One of the things that I remember when I was like 16 years old, I was on the road in the summer of '57. Uh, with a road band, and uh, we were in Dothan, Alabama. I had never had black-eyed peas and cornbread before, and I'd never had cucumber sandwiches, <laughs> and it became a, a staple in my life. Oh, good. I uh, just thought you should know that. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, I got one more story I'm going to tell. Okay. When we were, talk- we were talking about radios, and I, uh, after Eastern folded, I was hired as chief pilot with a little airline over in Easton, Maryland, on the uh, eastern shore over there in the Chesapeake Bay uh, from Washington. And they had a grandfather right, Maryland Air. It was the name of the um, company that I worked for as a, their chief pilot. And they had three lances. They had... Uh, two um, Piper, uh, not the Navajo, chieftains, two chieftains, and one Cessna 310. And with those airplanes, they were flying pretty much an air taxi service 
to the wealthy folks that lived over in Easton and St. Michael's, Maryland, over to Washington so that they could go to work. And a lot of them, like uh, Nicholas Brady, uh, flew him several times, Secretary of the Treasury, flew him several times across Chesapeake Bay. But one uh, one time I took a, a lance that, that we were having radio problems with it, and I took it across because the other airplanes were out. And I forgot who I was carrying over to uh, National Airport. But we had grandfather rights. Now, you couldn't get into Washington National, even the military, unless you had a star on your airplane. I think two stars are greater for a military airplane to land at Washington National back in that time. And uh, here we are landing a, a single-engine Piper Lance. Well, I'm coming in, and usually you come in over RFK Stadium, and you take a vector handoff there at, at the stadium, and the tower picks you up, and, and you land. Well, the radio wouldn't work. So here I am in a very hot area, and I'm over RFK Stadium. Do I circle around here until I get a green light gun uh, to proceed to national? And I thought to myself, well, or either I can turn around and uh, dodge airplanes coming in and go back to uh, Easton. Well, sure enough, there's a green light that I saw. So I continued to proceed to the airport. Uh, gave me another green light when I was on final approach. And I landed with the light system, the old gun system. And when I got to Butler Aviation, where we parked to deplane and get gas and pick up somebody to take them to the other side, I called the tower and I said, my God, I didn't think you guys still had those light signal guns. And uh, he said, oh, yeah. He said, occasionally we get them out like you and we work a pilot in. So, but do you remember the light signals, you guys, all of it? Jim, you had to know them, and Mike, you had to know them. Yeah. Yeah, and about, I don't <laughs> Maybe I never learned them well enough. <laughs> you always had a radio. Like, well, I flashing had red, radio. steady red, steady green, uh, flashing green, yeah. and all that. You know, green yeah. and white, go around and just continue yeah. circling. Yeah, I still remember uh, yeah. some Well, of our radio had a receiver, and all we were doing was getting our butt chewed out over the receiver. <laughs> yeah. We couldn't well, transmit, but we could listen. You know, I was thinking about Mike when that controller told you don't come back until you get a new radio. I think I would yeah. have remarked back to him, well, do you still know how to use a light gun? <laughs> okay, guys, let's take it in here and we'll put it away for this week. Put it in the hangar. And uh, if I can find how to land this thing. And, uh, but at any rate, no landing music today. But I'm going to play the Silver Wing so you guys can do something better than chat on this uh, on this radio hour. But it is fun talking about things. Yep. Anytime you talk about an airplane, it's always fun, right? Yep. Exactly. Yeah. Here we go. Here we go. I think. That's our sign-off music in the background. 
We'll see you again next week, same time, when we continue our trip through the pages of Repartee, the magazine of the Retired Eastern Pilots Association. Remember the EAL radio show Monday evening at 7 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time when we bring you the theme music from the 60s, the history of Eastern Airlines, Monday, May 18th at 7 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. So we'll say so long until then. So long to our Eastern family. We love you, Eastern. Slowly fading out of sight Don't leave me, I cry Don't take that airplane ride But you locked me out of your mind Left me standing here behind Silver wings Shining in the sunlight Roaring engines Headed somewhere in flight They're taking you away Silver wings Slowly fading out of sight Silver Taking you away and leaving me lonely, silver wings, slowly fading out of sight, slowly fading out of sight. Don, tell Dorothy we missed her, we missed her, and we hope she will get well quick. We do, too, and it's a good show, Neil. Thank you so much. Good job. Uh, right. See you at the enjoyed. gate Monday. See you at the gate Monday. Yeah. <laughs> so long.